And now I'm speaking with Aiden Jonah, and he is the editor-in-chief of The Canada Files. So Aiden, thank you so much for coming today. If people want to go to The Canada Files online, what's the, um, the short URL they can type in to get to The Canada Files? Oh, yeah, sure. It would be uh, thecanadafiles.com slash home. That, that's, that's the short. If you want to just go right to the front page, that's, that's the link. Okay. So if they, like, if they do thecanadafiles.com, it'll take them to the... Oh, yeah. That'll be close enough for them. Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, Aiden is the editor-in-chief of the Canada Files, and it's been taking Canada's left-wing media landscape by storm providing an anti-imperialist media outlet. Actually, this has been going on for a number of months now. I mean, what, what is it, like 20 months? Uh, it would be 21 months. Well, that's impressive. And for sure, there's a couple great articles in there we probably should have interviewed you about. There's one that recently caught our attention, of course, and that one is called Michael Kovrig and Spavor are spies despite obfuscations of Canada's mainstream media. And it's by yourself, Daniel G and William Deere. Now you guys give us a number of things to think about. Because in the case of Meng Wanzhou, which we're covering a lot in Hamilton, you can't talk about Meng without someone reflexively bringing up the issue of the two Michaels. It's covered in Canadian media as if the two Michaels were just these two innocent citizens wandering around China when they were picked up with no reason. And yet, you've uncovered all sorts of interesting details. I guess the first one is about reciprocity or hypocrisy, right? Because we're often told about this kind of opacity, that we cannot see what's going on in the proceedings of the trials or charges or evidence against the two Michaels. There's an opaque process we can't see. And yet, this is something that Canada does all the time, right? I mean, what are some of these opaque national security cases that you refer to in the article. Yeah, sure. So one of the first ones I'd want to hit on is you have this 2019 arrest and arraignment of Cameron J. Ortis. Uh, so this guy was a senior RCMP intelligence officer, and he was uh, identified as a supposed source of Chinese intelligence by the United States. Yet again, what's, what's the theme? It's by the United States. Uh, and of course, Canada has not released any information on this arrest. And of course, if we were, if our media actually played the role of a functioning, uh, it would have been up in arms. Because if we care supposedly so much about this, we should be taking issue with things happening on our own border. But the, the media simply doesn't. And here's one that's interesting, because it's obviously a connection to Hamilton, actually is there's this, uh, there's this Chinese-Canadian naval engineer. Uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, King Wong from Hamilton. So he was arrested uh, and charged with spying for China on December 1st, 2013. And this was allegedly for passing on information on Canada's frigate program. And But the, the wildest thing here, right, is that according to Huang's defense, uh, I'm quoting here, the warrant and the affidavit are so heavily censored that he cannot test the validity of the warrant or make full answer in defense. The warrant and affidavit as redacted put Mr. Wong in an impossible position. And guess what? Two of those four rather murky charges against Wong have been stayed ever since. So you have the, these cases, multiple cases within Canada, 
uh, where it's a very similar pattern, of course, where it's a national security case, right? You can't just go about spreading information about this to the to the public. You also have a thing that's quite ironic. Uh, you look at uh, the Hong Kong uh, Special Administrative Region, of course, province of China. Uh, and so it actually, there's a whole, I remember there was a real whole meltdown around the national security law being finally passed after almost two decades of efforts to do so. And one of the things myself and Daniel Z, we pointed out back in, I believe it was late September, 2020. Yes, that's correct. Was that the law, the security law in that region of China was actually remarkably similar to Canada's national security law and actually contained similar laws uh, for violate for violations, in fact. And it's just one of these things where there's not really a grasp almost on reality when you look at these two cases. When you look at these cases, it's things that are remarkably similar, in fact. So there's just there is such a pure hypocrisy to have people talking about it, it as if Covert against Babor's cases are some sort of unique example or some proof of an evil totalitarian regime. It's, it's not in the slightest. Right. You're pointing out a parallel here, which is that when yeah. Canada is addressing what it calls national security cases, these are hardly transparent proceedings. So it's uh, deceptive, as you pointed out, to portray the way the two Michaels are being treated as this highly opaque and unique kind of process. So you can find more detail about that in the article, of course, which again is called Michael Kovrig and Spavor are spies despite obfuscations of Canada's mainstream media. This is an article that was put together by yourself, Daniel G and William Deere. I noticed you mentioned Daniel uh, earlier in the interview. So this is actually a three-person job. I guess you, you had a lot to put together uh, to make this happen, right? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. There really, it really was the case where this was, uh, this was something that I recognized right away had to be a team effort. Uh, because quite frankly, it's, it's a uh, rather enormous task to look through all the elements of the story, whether it's the case of Spavor, the case of Kovrig, and what we'll get to later, which is, I think was the most crucial context of the piece, and I think the strongest argument elements of it was the fact that we really broke down what the ICG, and I'll, uh, you'll have to watch a little longer to, to hear more about that, what that group is and how it's contributed to regime change around the world and how then being a, an active employee of that group in a country that it's not even a legitimate NGO within, so not allowed to operate within. Okay, well, so I mean, you're, you're referring to some bigger issues here. I mean, uh, this is kind of the, the bulk of the article, which is that there's a question of who the two Michaels are and what they are doing. And I think it's Michael Kovrig, especially that relates to this organization you brought up, the International Crisis Group. And, and we'll get to that. I guess there's a kind of smaller introduction to that, the way oh, you course. guys, you know, there's Michael Spavor. Now, he's an interesting fellow. He has interests that are, I guess you could say they're unusual and quite specific. Uh, so if we're looking at this, Michael, he's someone who has been in uh, North Korea, for example, uh, he has like a tourism or some kind of organization there he's with. Like, let's just start there. I mean, what was he doing in North Korea? Right. So essentially he runs this, uh, this group called Paikatu Exchanges, right? Uh, so he was basically promoting trade and tourism within North Korea. 
And of course, as many people will be aware, North Korea is under a tremendous burden of sanctions. And here's the thing, during his operations in time in North Korea, he was never sanctioned, nor was Pike two exchanges. So I want to just bring that point up early on to make people think about this. And so Spavor's headquarters were set up uh, right at the China-North Korea border. And so Spavor was actually able to make connections originally with North Korea because he had links to the Chinese uh, and South Korean governments and a pretty famous North Korean uh, celebrity, Yeon Song-wool. And so the really interesting thing, of course, is that, and the problematic part is, so he used his position, Spavor did, uh, to take photos that were posted on the Instagram page of Pika 2 exchanges. And so some of these photos actually included soldiers in military uniforms, scenes from a military parade in 2017, and one of the most interesting things, photos of railroads being built in North Korea as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And so, of course, the key thing to remember, right, is that Spavor and Kovrig were very close friends, right? And the charge against, one of the charges against Spavor was that he was engaged in sharing, quote-unquote, second-tier intelligence with Kovrig through outlets such as Pikachu exchanges. And so really the bulk of the allegation there is, is really in essence, right, that Pikachu exchanges wasn't so much per se a front as it was an organization that did some work but was used, um, the information that could be assembled from it was used for a purpose useful to imperialism almost under some sort of semi-cover uh, is the way I'd put it. Yes. So, I mean, he was photographing some military equipment. He was photographing infrastructure of the Belt and Road Project that is a, a crucial kind of vital national and international infrastructure project for China's development and the integration of regional economies and something that the United States is competing with. So that that is interesting. I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, he, he operates uh, as a Westerner without being sanctioned by Canada or the U.S. In, in North Korea, which is interesting. His role has been in part to pass information to Michael Kovrig. So the two Michaels have a relationship and uh, Spavor was passing these photos and such to Kovrig. Now, this is a very interesting context for the whole thing, because from the article, we see that Kovrig is a member of the International Crisis Group. Um, and I mean, Listeners to the Taylor Report, for example, might be familiar with the International Crisis Group. It's been mentioned a lot in reference to, you know, Africa and Eastern Europe and such. They have a long history. So your article looks into that as well. What is this International Crisis Group? What does it do? Right. So the International Crisis Group is a pretty fascinating one, right? So it was founded in 1995. And so I think we've previously talked about uh, the Open Society Foundation and its uh, peculiar funding habits within Canada. Wait a minute. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point because I don't, sorry to interrupt, but you, of course, you wrote a very large expose of external funding within Canada. So there's an earlier article in the Canada files in which you uh, and others took a look at um, how- That was just me. That that was me just- Oh, just you. Impressive. So that was, that big article was just you. So you took a look at the massive amount of foreign organizations, whether it's NATO or the Open Society Foundation, which the goal of that, as you pointed out, is to kind of 
prod open countries to make them open to neoliberalism, to make them open to international capitalism and globalization and to weaken socialist countries and make them change into market economies. So that has a long history. And then now fast forward to today and this new article. And yes, you have the International Crisis Group and it has those linkages and it has its own projects too, which you're getting into. So like, yeah, what does the ICG specifically like to do? Yeah, sure. So what I'll say is, is interesting. And so it's, it's a funny thing as the, in the function of social democracy for imperialism is that part of the big funding it got was secured uh, by this former Finnish president, Marty uh, Atsari, who's from the Social Democrats Party and former foreign minister of Australia, Gareth, Gareth Evans, from the Labour Party in Australia, right? And so it's always framed itself as working to prevent wars and maintain global stability. But in fact, its policies really just work to enforce regime change in the expansion of NATO and other uh, US-led alliances really around the world. And it's it's no wonder that some, uh, someone like George Soros and his uh, Open Society Foundation would be very interested in supporting something like the International Crisis Group because Open Society Foundations was one of the key groups uh, in really the destruction of uh, communism in, uh, in Eastern Europe. And so it's just, a con- I view it as a continuation and sort of organization that's very convenient for someone of Soros' ilk uh, in terms of his goal to just advance neoliberalism really across the world. And so there's, there's multiple fronts that um, the International Crisis Group has really gotten in, involved in. So the first one was hit on by the gray zone, right? where they actually played a role really in manufacturing and maintaining support for American uh, intervention, uh, further American intervention in Syria during the civil war. And so the ICG has actually worked pretty actively to whitewash uh, the founder of Jabhat al-Nusra, Mohammed al-Jolani, uh, by whitewashing uh, the crimes of himself and of, of his supposed freedom fighters uh, as basically being a moderate rebel types and supposedly fighting for democracy against the somehow supposedly dictatorial Assad government. Yeah, I, I, no, this is ringing a bell to me because this is what the ICG does uh, from your article and what we've seen elsewhere. It sort of insinuates itself into these regional conflicts, if you can call them that, because most of the time the U.S. is directly involved in fostering them. But it puts itself there and says, oh, we want to help mediate. right? We want to bring peace or we want to bring an end to the conflict and they should do this and they should do that. So in this case, they're diminishing the U.S. role or the, the visibility of the U.S. role. They're promoting a, a player in that conflict that is extremely destructive and violent and is foreign funded and foreign supplied and foreign armed and so on. And they're trying to make this into a legitimate actor and whitewash it, as you said. So, I mean, yes, uh, the, there was that article and that expose about the ICG in Syria. But I mean, that's that's not that's not even like that's barely scratching the surface, right, because they're all over the place. Oh, yeah, there's more, actually. They've been pretty actively working to uh, destabilize Ethiopia by supporting this uh, secessionist Tigray People's Liberation Force in Ethiopia. And so the TPLF, they've perpetrated many atrocities. They've done violence against their own citizens. 
They've withhold, they've withheld aid from Tigrayans. They've used child soldiers repeatedly. They manipulate vulnerable refugees into acting as victims in doctored propaganda films against the central Ethiopian government. And they've even been called out by USAID for stealing from USAID aid convoys. So this, the group that the ICG is supporting is couldn't be one of the more nasty groups out there, quite, quite frankly. And this all really comes from this fantastic uh, New Africa Institute report called Disinformation in Tigray, Manufacturing Consent for a Secessionist War. And so I'll say as we go more into that, it's just that it really reminds me of the, the Xinjiang genocide narrative. It really does in the sense that the opposition to a legitimate central government is extremely violent, basically manipulates, does constant propaganda, does all these things that can be consistently debunked. But the West puts, pushes them like madmen. Uh, and it's, it's something remarkably dangerous, right? You have two uh, ICG analysts that are even really worth focusing on. You have uh, them, the SCG employing this pretty much active regime change advocate. The person's name is Dinesh Matani. So he was forced to resign in disgrace from the UN in October 2014. So this person was a member of the Somalia Eritrea Monitoring Group, which monitored US, UN sanctions on Eritrea and, quote, was caught using his position at the UN to influence and organize regime change operations in Eritrea and met with these projected transactional, transitional leaders. And you also then have this ICG analyst, William Davidson, Davison, who's openly collaborated with the TPLF, provided coaching to their leaders, uh, attempted to mobilize support for not prosecuting TPLF leaders after they tried to secede uh, in, in January 2021 again, supposedly on the basis that they had uh, internal support. And so Davison actually eventually got booted out of the country. He got deported because he was spreading so much information and openly collaborating with the TPLF. And so you have this incredibly dangerous organization. That's, this, this is just stuff in the past like seven, eight years. And this is no doubt not even the full extent of what they've done. This is just the start of looking into them. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, you've pointed out it's once you start digging, it's hard to stop. And the ICG alone has been all over that. It's like one of those regime change style NGOs that you would see someone like Bernard Henri Levy make an appearance in. And, you know, before we go on from that into the to the case of the two Michaels, I mean, you were just digging in on the on the North Korea thing, too, with the ICG, because it looks like the International Crisis Group had some objectives with regard to uh, North Korea. They had statements and they said, well, we want to do this. So what, what did they want to do with regard to the case of North Korea? Right. Sure. Let me get let me get all into that. So basically what happened, right, is after uh, and this is some great work um, from this writer uh, in New Left Review, Hazel Dean put together this really interesting piece that we really found to be tremendously useful. So following the fall of Iraq in 2003, right, it was Iran and North Korea. The, these two countries were supposedly part of an axis of evil uh, depicted by Bush. And so North Korea was started to be targeted in May of 2003. You have this Council on Foreign Relations Task Force chaired by ICG founder Morton Abramovitz. They developed a quote-unquote phased negotiation strategy with the goal of pressuring North Korea to abandon its nuclear program. And so this 
uh, strategy gave North Korea only six months to surrender its nuclear program or face greater uh, sanctions. And in fact, they had a potential invasion being planned if China and Japan were to actually cooperate uh, with this, this council. So you can already understand why, uh, why China wouldn't uh, 100% trust this group because obviously China rejected this request or else look, North Korea would have been probably invaded or worse. And so it's interesting, right? Because this is getting back to Kovrig. So he's, of course, uh, Kovrig, a member of the ICG's Northeast Asia section, right? So Kovrig really values Chinese cooperation with the Western imperialist aims. He really wants that, basically, to phrase it better. He really wants that cooperation because he views it as so important to facilitate regime change in North Korea. So, I mean, what you're saying is like (laughs) Kovrig has, as someone who has written in a way or made statements in a way that his views and goals on North Korea clearly line up with that of the international crisis group and its interventionist goals where it wants to affect the political situation. Oh, of course. And I mean, pretty much he wouldn't be employed otherwise, right? So, and this is the interesting thing, right, is that been very much frustrated, of course, uh, by the fact that China and North Korea really moved very much towards uh, diplomatic uh, rapprochement and really worked to boost, continually boost uh, their ties, ties that are, of course, very strong between the DPRK uh, and China, given, of course, China's support uh, in the, uh, the Western interventionist Korean War. So there's long, long-term ties, and those ties have really been boosted. And so getting back to the whole point, of course, you have Kovrig with the fact that he, of course, is very much angling for a regime change in North Korea, someone who's really cynically trying to push this diluted hope of getting China's cooperation with the aim of overthrowing North Korea. And then, of course, you have Spavor, who's in North Korea operating on the China-North Korea border and posting Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure, military uh, pictures of military personnel and equipment on social media, right? When you have the ICG being like a NATO functionary, a functionary of open society, uh, and with someone like, of course, George Soros, whose organization, Open Society Foundations, is still the top funder, uh, saying that Xi Jinping, in his view, is the most dangerous enemy of uh, Western democratic societies. You have a real situation where you have players that play a very useful role essentially for the West in potentially finding infrastructure that could be uh, crippled, could be caused, could cause serious problems to them uh, or develop real uh, military responses in the view of a, of a serious military intervention. It's quite frankly, uh, no wonder that Kovrig and Spavor were uh, eventually taken in. And with Spavor, of course, simply just being the fact that he really passed on those photos. Kovrig doesn't get those photos without Spavor. So you have both sides of the coin, per se, of this piece, really, in my view, being parties that, at bare minimum, deserved incredible suspicion. In my view, is there's total justification. For, for these arrests, I think, quite frankly, that you could have just as easily have seen these people being arrested three months earlier 
Twitter and Canada would probably have said nothing. It really oh, is the fact that they arrested after Hmong. So that was a defining point. Yeah, their activities are certainly curious, as is their relationship and their relationship with various organizations. And I think as your article pointed out, the International Crisis Group is not an authorized organization in China. So the ICG has no legal standing. Anyone working for them is operating for an organization that is not approved. So that's interesting in of itself. So like you said, there's lots we don't know. There's lots we should be looking into that Canadians deserve more information about this case. You found some very interesting details and you've told people about them, that your outlet as a whole. And this is what we need to see more of. The corporate media are simply not doing their job. People are unaware of these details, details that are out there for the taking. So we've really been failed, you know, by corporate media. And I think it really points out why we need the Canada Files outlets like that. And you've got you've got operations going on, you've got fundraising going on, and you know this is something people can help make possible. So when people go to the Canada Files website, one of the things that pops up is the fundraiser, of course. And you've been very active on that for the last thirty days or so. And not only that, but I mean you've added some new goals, right? Because people are going to get out of it what they put into it. So if uh, if they meet certain, I guess you're looking for monthly totals. So Yes, that's really key. Uh, yeah, the monthly total. So there's like tiers. And if you reach, you know, tier one, tier two, there's these things that you can do. So what are the, what are some of the things you can do if you get more funding from people? Right. So the first thing that we recently announced uh, at around 1250 Canadian a month. So we're currently at 845 Canadian dollars per month. So we're around uh, $405 away from that goal. So we're actually not impossibly far away from it. So we're going to introduce... Canafiles is going to introduce this hashtag upon further investigation initiative. And so essentially what the deal is with this initiative, right, is that after each article or big investigation, the Canafiles is going to do this. It is going to do a follow-up thread, a Facebook post, and Instagram post. And so what these posts, what these posts are going to be focused on is looking at the extra details that we could not fit in the original investigation, uh, in any case due to potential overlap or just having the investigation simply be uh, unwieldy and too long to read, getting that information out there. And we will, all, or we will, we may also, uh, if there, if we view it as the, the right decision, we might even go about and do even further research on top of this and add this to uh, the hashtag upon further investigation posts that come out on social media after this article. Uh, especially something like this, Cover Against Babor, is something we could really have a field day with. There's just so many details to go into and some things that we couldn't uh, explore uh, uh, as much as uh, we want to just within this first, first piece. But it's uh, in this that case, it's really up to people to get us to that 1250 per month mark and uh, make make something like that uh, very much possible. I'll mention something before I even get to the 2500 goal is that I'll let you know that there's been an investment in terms of social media capacity with the Canada files. So we're going to be working very, very hard to get uh, our work and our efforts out to a much wider audience and continue to reach people. So we can also say that the support that's already been given, we are putting it to a very positive, a very positive use. 
So when you hit 2,500, of course, what's gonna happen is this. We are gonna introduce this once per month uh, interview show with, uh, with a guest where you have the focus of it being on world events impacted by Canada's imperialist foreign policy. And so remember that that goal is actually only around uh, 1655 Canadian per month away. So yes, it might seem large, but in fact, it is very much not an impossible goal. And it is also a goal that would allow myself and Daniel G, the associate editor of the Canada Files, to work on the Canada Files, uh, to be paid for the Canada Files on a part-time minimum wage basis. So not only would he be helping provide the Canada Files with a certain degree of security uh, in the short term, you'd also be getting two terrific goals if you can hit that 2,500 a month range. There's certainly more other goals going further from that, but for now, I think it's best that people focus on those two uh, and what's available to them. www.thecanadafiles.com. They go there and the fundraiser pop-ups are available. And, sure. all the and also if people want the direct link, it's donorbox.org slash the hyphen Canada hyphen files. If you want the direct link, you'll notice the donation page is a bit more spruced up. Uh, and so I hope people will uh, will like that. Yeah, they can go and make that 1250 a month, 2500, whatever possible. So please do that. Please go to the Canada files. Please read this article. Please read upcoming articles because I've had previews. Some of the stuff coming out is going to be real good. So you're definitely going to want to see that. So uh, Aiden, I know you've got this like extremely time intensive fundraiser going on. So I I do appreciate that you're able to be here to talk about this and share it with others in Hamilton and elsewhere. So uh, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for doing this article and talking about China, Canada, imperialism, all these NGOs that intervene everywhere. It's all very important stuff. So thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. It's always a pleasure to come on shows. And I think uh, shows like this are really the exact uh, example of what will will really be necessary in what could be a future Canadian left anti-imperialist media ecosystem. Because right now we simply do not have that ecosystem. And part of the Canada Files efforts is really to be capable of being the spearhead force in engaging that. So people think not only of supporting the Canada Files, think of supporting the enabling of a broader media ecosystem that challenges Canadian imperialism at its very core. Thanks for thinking so broadly. I guess, and we'll see you next time.